Philippians chapter 2. If someone could maybe close that floating do- the folding door there. It is always hard to rope people back in who love to be with each other. Uh, it was a wonderful time last Sunday to ordain Jeff Havisto, um, and that was a just great occasion for us as a church, um, and before that was Easter, but we've been in the book of Philippians as a church, uh, learning to live worthy of the gospel. That's our, our theme in the book of Philippians, and we are going to continue in today looking at verses 12, uh, actually 14 to 18. The title of today's message is Shine. Uh, an alternative title I thought of was Shining Stars Don't Grumble, and I think you'll see in a few minutes why that's a, perhaps a fitting title for the message. But as we prepare to hear from God and through His Word, let's pray and ask Him to speak to us. We have this wonderful privilege as a people to hear from God. He speaks to us through His Word in the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we come together in, in his word is taught and, and preached. Uh, it's not just a lecture. Uh, it, is, it is an experience of God speaking to us. And, and my prayer, my desire is that I would fade from uh, the background, that you might hear God. Uh, so let's pray and ask him to do just that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're the living God. You're alive. And you rule and reign right now. And you have always been a God who... who speaks, who creates, who, who acts through your word. And so, Lord, today as we come before your word, we ask you to do just that. Would you speak? Would you create? Would you act? Would you change us? Would you speak to us of your glory and of the wonder of the gospel? And would we go from this place having encountered you and having been transformed by you, Lord? We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word in your grace and mercy. It's only by your grace, only through you speaking in the power of the Spirit that any of this will take place. So we look to you, we wait on you, and I ask you, Lord, to help me serve you and serve your people today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Verses 14 through 18. This is part of this letter, and if you remember, one of the themes in this letter uh, It's a call to live a life worthy of the gospel. In particular, Paul is addressing some unity issues that are going on in this church. These are dear friends of his, and so he's seeking to bring the truth of the gospel to this situation. And so this section fits in uh, in this overall theme. Uh, As he brings instruction, as he brings the gospel, he brings this section of Scripture, and he says in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling... Or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad 
and rejoice with me. Philippians chapter 2, 14 to 18. Perhaps one of the most glorious, epic moments in all of history, one of the most glorious, epic moments potentially in all of history was undone by the simple but deadly sin of grumbling. Any guesses what that historic, epic moment was? You guys are good. Yes, that's right. It was, it was the exodus of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And if you know the story, it's a, it's a glorious story. It's a wonderful story. A picture a million people or so in harsh slavery in Egypt. And these are people who are people of promise. They, they have a history of relating to God. They have promises from God to bless them and make them a great people. But their current situation is that they are in slavery, harsh slavery in Egypt. They, they belong to others. They belong to these harsh slave masters who, who make their lives miserable. And they cry out to God and, and God delivers them. He, he acts in, in an a amazing way. This nation of Egypt is really probably the most powerful nation on the earth at the time. They are a mighty nation. They are a prosperous nation. They are a nation that's rooted in their, in their deities and their different power centers. And God comes and rescues his people by bringing these, these ten plagues, these plagues that are specifically focused to come against their deities and their power centers. And there's this amazing, amazing supernatural series of events that take place. And finally, after the tenth plague, the Israelites are delivered. The Egyptians relent and let them go to freedom. And not only do they let them go, but as they go, they give them their riches. They, they say, here, take Take, all, take my money, take these riches, and go. And so the people leave Egypt with riches, having escaped their slavery. It's a glorious moment. And then God is leading them. Can you imagine? God is leading them by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He's right there with them, leading them out. They go out, and, and God, God makes a, an agreement, a, a solemn agreement, a, a covenant with them. He says, I'm the God who's delivered you from Egypt. Now walk with me and walk in my ways. He, God makes this wonderful promise to them, a gracious promise for them to relate to him in his grace and in obedience. He, he establishes this agreement and, and he establishes with them this, this um, wonderful, remarkable system of government and, and religious devotion to him and as a people really ever put together. It's, it's a wonderful moment. And they're right on the edge of going into this promised land, this land that was promised to them that is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and it was a rich and prosperous land, especially for a, a sheep herding and farming culture. It, it is a wonderful place for them to go and have as their own, right there in the midst of all these nations, to shine. It's a glorious moment. They're on the edge of this epic opportunity. What happens is that as they prepare to go in, they send out scouts. Wise thing to do. Find out what's going on, how to, how to do things, what they ought to do. And these scouts go out, and, and they do indeed see this place that's rich and wonderful. But they come back, and, and they report, well, it is rich. It is wonderful. But there are these fortifications. There's these fortified cities there, large fortifications. And, and matter of fact, there are people there that, that live in these places that are, are 
giants. They're large and strong, mighty warriors. and They're these legendary warriors. They live there. And ten of the twelve spies come back and basically say, we can't do this. We're not going to make it. Two of them say, no, God can, God can do this. But what happens is the people hear the report and they start to grumble. Grumble is, is basically under the breath, quiet protest, saying, oh, what's going on? This, what's going to happen? This is awful. We're going to get killed. This is terrible. They grumble, and then they start to, they start to outwardly, outwardly argue and say, let's go back to Egypt. This is crazy. We're going to get killed. Let's, let's get rid of this guy, Moses, who was, who was leading them. Let's get rid of this guy. Let's find another leader. Let's go back. So they're at this epic moment, and grumbling and arguing comes in and unravels all this opportunity they have. It gets so bad, actually, that they, they decide to lynch, or in their day, stone to death Moses. They're just about to do that. They're going to stone to death the guy that has led them through all this epic deliverance and who, who meets himself face to face with God. They're going to stone him. So it's not just an action against Moses. It's an action against God himself. And God comes in, boom, at that moment, intervenes. He punishes them and then banishes them to 40 years of wandering in the desert until that generation of grumblers is gone. What a tragedy. What an awful tragedy. This story actually is in Paul's mind, I believe, as he calls us in this passage to do all things without grumbling or questioning or disputing. This is in his mind. And the reality is, I think, that this isn't just about a story that happened 3,000 plus years ago, 3,000 to 4,000 years ago. This is, this is about a reality that we all deal with day to day, personally and as a church. Now, I don't mean to say our church is necessarily having this problem particularly, but we have it to some degree, and some churches have it particularly as a problem. Grumbling and arguing has been the bane of God's people throughout the, throughout the centuries. And Paul calls us in this section of Scripture to something far better. He calls us to do everything, to do all things without grumbling or questioning. And he says in this passage, and we're going to dig into it, that we do this as we hold on to the word of life, as we hold on to Christ. And that the result of that, refusing to grumble and argue as we hold on to Christ, is that we glorify God in dramatic and eternal ways. That's what I want to talk about as we dig into this passage. Those three things, the command not to grumble or argue, the basis, the ground of that, which is as we hold fast to the word of life, and then the results of that. I think you have notes and you can follow along and take notes as it, as it serves you. So let's start first with this command, do all, things, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Uh, these two things, grumbling and questioning, go together. Paul tells us to do all things without grumbling or questioning. The, the word for grumbling in the original language is, uh, if I remember right, is gogunzumon, which is not something you need to, to know. Uh, why do I say it? Because it's one of those words it's, uh, that sounds like what it describes. Do you know what I mean? It's gogunzumon, boom, 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 boom. We have the word murmur, similarly, right? Murmur is a word that sounds like what you do when you murmur. Uh, and that's the idea. This, this grumbling is the, that whole thing of that, that low-level 
dissatisfaction, that low-level voicing of our unhappiness, our low-level disagreement. That's what he's talking about here in grumbling. Do all things without grumbling. And then he talks about do all things without grumbling or questioning uh, or disputing sometimes it, it says. Sometimes it's translated complaining or arguing. The second word, which is uh, in the ESV, I think is questioning, uh, is, this, is more than just that low-level dissatisfaction. It's an open disputing. It's, it's arguing. It's saying, it's, it's going from just like, oh, no, 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 that's, I'm not happy with this. a dumb idea. What are they doing? To, this is the stupidest thing. What are we doing? Let's go back to Egypt. It's that open opposition that's voiced, arguing against Something. So Paul's telling us, he's telling us to do all things without these things, without grumbling, without questioning. Now, again, he has in mind the history of Israel, that, that these guys derailed all the, all the promise that they had. And he actually elsewhere in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, refers to this. He, he, he calls the Corinthians who were grumbling and arguing. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. He's, he's warning the Corinthians and, and, and also he's warning the Philippians, his dear friends. This is much friendlier church to him. But he's warning them both of this problem because this is a real problem. Paul loves these people. These are his close friends. And he knows that there's a problem with unity. We don't know the details, by the way. We don't know what was going on in Philippi. He does actually mention two individuals later on, Yodia and Syncti. It's interesting names for us. They're two women. They probably were deaconesses in the church. They were leaders as women in a deaconess-type role. He mentions them by name because there was something going on around them. He calls them to agree with each other. Basically, I think is implied is you guys and maybe the factions that are with you stop grumbling and arguing and agree with each other. Now, a really important qualifier in the context of this truth, Paul is not calling the Philippians and God is not calling us to say nothing. He's not saying that the alternative to grumbling and and questioning is silence, that you just keep your mouth shut and just do what you're told, that I'm not going to interact with things, I'm not going to dialogue. That's not what he's saying. It, it is really important to understand that a healthy body, a healthy church must have dialogue and conversation. A healthy body is, is a body. The image of, in Scripture is that this is a body. It's like a body. And each, each part of the body has a different function. And each part of the body is interconnected with others. And how do you functionally express that interconnection? Through conversation. Through talking. And particularly uh, for leaders, it's really important for leaders to hear from the rest of the body. And the body to be so interconnected with healthy dialogue and speech that we benefit one another. And that's, for us as a church, we're committed to that. We have policies and practices that are built for just that purpose so that we can dialogue and, and we want to have healthy interchange. We want to have appropriate feedback. And there's a right way to do that. There's a right way to do that where we bring our questions to those who can do something about our question versus murmuring on the side about that problem. 
Hey, did you hear that? So, what's going on with that? That's, I don't like that thing. I don't, we shouldn't do that thing. And then what happens often is, is it starts as a murmur, something that we don't like. And it, and, and it can be all sorts of things. It can vary from the color of the chairs, the fact that we put the blue chairs in front of the maroon chairs, and nobody said anything to me about that, by the way. But that, it, could, it can vary from things like that to substantial things, things that are of importance, like, like the gospel. And, and those things are, are all worthy of dialogue, certainly the gospel, most worthy. The difference is, is when we encounter these things that we disagree with or the differences in preferences, it's how we handle that. Is there faith? And we're going to go through this scripture and understand how this functions, how it works. Is there faith? Is it the, the desire to build up the body and to understand that we're a body and to preserve and protect and, and to help the body be the wisest it can be, recognizing the different roles, the different responsibilities, and recognizing the need for those in their roles to be rightfully informed as well, but all the while protecting. So take the chairs. You might want the blue chairs to be up in the front or the back. And I don't have a strong preference, any, just so you know. Um, you might feel like, well, there's wisdom in that. Now, you could do one or two things. It might be just that it just really irritates you that the blue chairs are up here. The blue chairs, I have to sit in the front, and they're not the nicest chair. Why can't I sit in the maroon chairs? And, and, and also, it just looks lopsided. What's the deal with this? This just bothers me. And you can just start talking to people about the blue chairs. This, do you guys like the blue chairs? I don't like the blue chairs. It really irritates me. It distracts me, actually, in worship, because I'm always looking at the blue chairs instead of looking up and thinking about what we're singing about. Do you, what do you think about that? <laughs> And then it can start to get to the point where, hey, let's get together. You know, let, you, you do, often we do this, can do this subconsciously. We start to form a, a, a group that's on our side as we, we kind of murmur and we see throughout the bait. Do we get murmurs back? Oh, great, murmurs back. And then you start forming an argument. And then you bring that argument. And often it's not brought in the right way either. It's like, you know, uh, this has not happened here. But, but, you know, there are churches where in family meetings, there, there's arguments, open arguments. There's the blue, the blue chair front faction and the blue, blue chair back faction. Seriously, there are things like that. Do you remember I told the story about the, the Peg Baptist and anti-Peg Baptist church? You guys remember that story where, where they split over the fact that there were pegs to hang coats in the back? It's a true, true story. A church split became two churches, Peg Baptist they're not called that officially. Peg Baptist and anti-Peg Baptist churches argue and split over the pegs in the back. That sort of thing happens because there's murmuring and arguing that are done in an unbiblical way. Biblical way to do that? Talk to the people in charge of where the chairs go. Say, hey, what do you think about this? And then as you talk about it, bring, bring your understanding. Bring your preferences. And then leave it at their feet. Let them lead in that. Interact. But if it isn't a matter of clear scripture and conscience, let it go. Let them make their decision and then let them know, you know what? You could put the blue chairs anywhere in the building and I'm going to support you. Keep it, out in, keep it in perspective. This is the sort of thing that goes on and this is the sort of warning that Paul, this is the sort of situation that Paul is getting at for, for churches, not just the Philippian church, but for us as well. By the way, just so you know, we have, we have laid out that way of doing things in a document, our document on redemptive speech, we call it. It's in our new members' material. There are copies at the back. So if you want to know kind of how we walk it out in the nitty-gritty, take a look at that. And, and I, I hope that encourages you to, to dialogue, to communicate your concerns in a healthy way, but also to avoid this terrible pitfall 
of grumbling and arguing. It's, uh, it goes on. It goes on in ways like this. I, I, uh, it, it's so common. And I know as I talk about it, I'm sure, well, I can't say for sure, pretty sure, that every single one in this room has experienced this in one way or the other. Either you have participated or you've been affected by grumbling and arguing. You've seen it in some way. I think it's true for all of us. I have numerous stories. Now, thank God, uh, very few stories in this church. God has been kind to us to lead us by his words. But years ago, I was in a church, a good church. I was younger, uh, much younger. And there's a situation I went through where I regret what happened. There was a a young pastor there. He was uh, full of zeal. He was a sharp guy. He had some weaknesses. Every pastor has weaknesses. And, and, And as he sought to lead us, some of those weaknesses rubbed off on people in ways that they didn't like. Now, that's going to happen. And there is a right way to deal with that. There's an appropriate way to deal with that. According to Scripture, uh, as you build a relationship together, uh, encouraging one another, and if it's serious enough, even following 1 Timothy 5, to bring, to bring something to an elder when you need to. But that's not what happened in the church. People started to grumble. It even started out with things like, oh, I'll just make his name up, John, you know, Pastor John is a good guy, but he's got some rough edges. Statements like that. Doesn't, it sounds pretty innocent, doesn't it? Good guy, but got some rough edges. It, it, you, oh, yeah, 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 I understand that. But, but is that a helpful thing? Is that a helpful way to bring critique? Is it, is it building up or is it tearing down that pastor in someone else's eyes? That sort of grumbling went on and a group formed who talked about the rough edges and had specific instances and talked to one another about it. Now, my fault in it was not that I participated in that, but as a, a young leader in that church, I did something that I very much regret. I remained or tried to remain neutral. Because it's always easy to be the neutral guy, right? You don't, you don't have to, you don't have to you know, fall on your sword for either side. You can kind of be safe. And that's, I think, what was going on. It's like, I don't want to get in this because if I side with the pastor, these guys are going to hate me. If I side with them, then I'll be doing wrong. And, and so, so I remained neutral. That was wrong. And I regret that. Now, that murmuring and arguing got to the point where there were departures from the church and there was disunity. The church remained intact. The pastor remained there. But I regret what I did. I should have said more. I should have gone to the people and said, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, do all things. If you have a complaint, you go talk to him. Don't tell me. You talk to him and you go talk to him in love with a desire to help him grow. You do it discreetly as a brother or sister in Christ. If it gets serious enough where we have to address it and we can substantiate its seriousness, we have procedures in Scripture that help protect this elder and our church from this alternative. Perhaps you have a story from your past like that. Philippians chapter 2 here helps us. It warns us. It tells us that this is, this is not to be. We are not to, to do anything. We are to do all things without grumbling or complaining. The, the command here is a zero-tolerance policy for grumbling and arguing. Zero tolerance. It is not to happen in the church. And it is not to happen with the believer. We can extend this principle not just, from the, just in the church, but also to life as well. And I would challenge all of us, I, and myself as well, how do we relate to authority in general 
outside the church, in the workplace. Sometimes that's where it's worse, isn't it? The grumbling and the arguing and the faction forming and, and instead of a healthy dialogue, seeking to help. And then when we, our help is refused for whatever reason, short of something that's a moral issue, we, I think, are called to pray and keep silent. Or maybe find another job, but to not create division. So in the workplace, as U.S. citizens, there's a, in a constitutionally uh, guaranteed and appropriate way to interact. I'm not saying we should be silent, but, but are there times when we just grumble and complain in a, in a destructive way that tears, tears our leaders down? I think we can extend it to, to quite a broad part of life, to all aspects of life. The focus here, of course, is on the church. And there's a zero tolerance policy. It's not to happen. This is not to happen among the people of God. Hear that. Hear that command. It is not to happen among the people of God. It's not to happen in my life. I say it to myself. Because I, as I say it, I know I have these tendencies. For all of us, it is not to happen. There is to be no tolerance for that. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Do all things. Everything we do in life is not to contain grumbling and questioning. Clearly. Now, as I say that, you are probably thinking like I am, well, that's, that's tough. That is hard. Because I know my first reaction when something happens I don't like is to grumble. And sometimes I don't even know I'm doing it. I just do it right away. I, do you guys ever do that? I, uh, I do it often. <laughs> I do it often at home. Something I don't like. Oh, why are we doing this? This is not how we shouldn't do this. There's just this natural tendency to grumble. There's this natural disposition just to, just to voice my complaints. And I don't, I, I don't know all the reasons why. I think most of it's bad. Um, part of it, though, is the impulse to respond to what's going on. So I don't think the answer is to be silent. It's to, it's to, to turn that around and do it in a, a helpful way. But I do it. And if you're like me, uh, you, you know this is tough. And as you start to think about it, you're, you're probably thinking, well, I'm in trouble because here's the work I do that. At home I do this. In the church sometimes I do it this way. Maybe I don't do it that bad, but I do it. I think all of us are guilty here to some degree. And there are some of us, too, we need to recognize that it's more than just your common struggle. This is something that characterizes your life. And you need to take it very seriously. The warnings in Scripture are very strong on this. But Paul doesn't leave us just with the command. He doesn't leave us just with this command and say, that's it. All right? Just pick yourselves up by the bootstraps. Stop doing it. Let's move on. He calls the Philippians to something glorious. If you follow the, the, the discussion here, he says that you do all these things without grumbling or question, and there's a result that follows from that. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And, and later he talks, and we'll get to this, he says, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So there's results on the day of Christ. And then later on in verse 17 and 18, he talks about the joy that, that flows from a life lived this way. But there's something buried right in the middle of all this that's really key. You guys see it? This is essential. This is the ground for everything else. Verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. The only way you or I can resist grumbling and complaining and live in the alternative 
biblical way of speaking and interacting is if we hold fast to the Word of life. That's the only way we can do this. That's the only way we're going to see these glorious results is through holding fast to the Word of life. Well, what does that mean, holding fast to the Word of life? Well, the Word of life speaks of God's Word and the ultimate Word in God's Word, the Bible, is the Word of the Gospel. That's the center of the Word. And so when it says the Word of life, it's speaking of the Gospel. It brings life, but it's the Gospel. The Gospel is the good news. That word gospel comes from the Old English, uh, good spell, uh, and spell being the old way to say news. It just means literally good news. So we say gospel. It's the good news of the gospel. The gospel is, is a very simple and straightforward truth, but an oh so powerful and deep and glorious truth. It's, that, it's this, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is this word of life, this truth. Now, why is it the word of life? Because this good news, the gospel, this good news about Christ, that he died for sins, died for our sins. He died and paid for our sins on the cross and rose again. That this good news brings life. It brings life. It brings life to us. It changes our situation. It brings eternal life. It brings a, an eternal life that's a, to be a, a ever day-to-day experience as well. Well, how does it do that? Well, the reality is we are dead in our sins. Scripture teaches us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. What are trespasses and sins? What is sin? Sin is rebellion against God. An action and an attitude. It's, it's saying, I don't want you, God. I don't want your ways. I want my ways. I want to go my way. I want to call my own shots. It's a turning away from God and His goodness and His greatness. And it, and it manifests itself in all sorts of ways. And we often think of the really bad ones when we say sin, like murder or adultery or theft or these, these big ones that we are aware of. And that certainly is sin. But it's also things like The hidden things like jealousy, bitterness, self-righteousness, and pride. All of us, all of us are affected by sin. And all of us, if we're left in that state, we are dead in our sins. We're dead because we're cut off from God. Life's only found in God. We may be alive physically, but we're not alive spiritually if we're in our sins. We're dead. And 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 we we are all... captive to sin in that place. Now, it may not show itself in the same way for all of us. Some of us, it does in very obvious ways. We know we're slaves to sin. We know because we're aware of our failure. For some of us, though, we might think we're doing pretty well because we don't do the big ones. But if we look deeper, we'll see we're slaves. We're dead in our sins. But the Word of God, the Word of life comes. This wonderful good news of Christ God the Son coming to live the righteous life, the the life not full of any grumbling or arguing, but a life of faith and love for His Father, a life of love for other people and all that He did, this perfect life lived out and worthy of of eternal life because there was no sin in it. Yet He lays that life down for you on the cross. He lays that life down to, to pay for your sins. He didn't have to. He didn't have to pay for his own sins. He was sinless. And yet God, the Son, laid his life down on the cross, bore the just penalty for your sins on the cross. 
He took your sins. Should you trust in Him, He took your sins upon Himself and paid for all of them to pay its penalty and to offer a righteous alternative to His Father to be received. That's the good news. Should you receive it, it's good news for you. He died and He rose again on the third day. He conquered your sin. All of it. By, by dying and rising again. And he, he rose again and He ascended. And in, as you put your faith in Him, His death pays for your sins and His resurrection life is a guarantee of your life. Starting the moment you believe of your eternal life in Him. That's good news. That's the word of life that Paul's talking about. It brings life because it brings forgiveness and reconciliation with God and now we can walk with God and have a relationship with Him and experience Him day to day and experience the power of forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that changes us, that gives us the ability to say no, that gives us the assurance we are forgiven and accepted and our greatest problem is taken care of. It's as we hold fast to the Word of life, to this truth, that we can resist grumbling and complaining. You may think, well, well I kind of get it, but like, help me understand. How does it work itself out? How is this going to make a difference on Monday for me? How is the word of life going to help me not grumble and complain and shine as a star in the universe? How is that going to work? Well, there's probably lots of ways. I just want to cover two quickly. One is through the salvation of Christ in the word of life. This good news brings salvation. It brings rescue from sin and its consequences. The consequences of sin are our eternal separation from God, eternal death. And should we live our lives refusing the gospel, pursuing our sin, we are dead and we will remain dead forever. That's what hell is. You don't want to go there. You don't want to remain in the state you're in. You don't want it to last forever. Once you die physically, no more opportunity to respond. And that could happen tomorrow. Take it seriously if you're in a place. We understand for some of, some of you, if you're in a place of thinking about it, it takes time to process. We're patient with that. But consider. Consider the importance of this offer. Consider, are you, if you are a believer, the wonder of it, that you are forgiven. Your greatest problem of, of separation from God is taken care of forever. Your sins are, are atoned for. You are accepted as righteous. You, Christ was Treated as we deserve so we can be treated as Christ deserves. That's our inheritance. All, all the, the inheritance that Christ earned is ours. To be loved by God. To have Him in our lives and orchestrating our lives for our ultimate good. And, and to have an eternal inheritance with Him. It's, it's glorious. Now, how does that relate to not grumbling or complaining? When we understand that, our greatest problem is taken care of. It puts everything else in perspective. And now when the blue chair is in front of the maroon chairs... It's just not a big deal because my greatest problem is taken care of. I'm reconciled with God. It, I, I think of uh, perhaps a, a story would help. Peg and I are uh, celebrating our 25th anniversary this fall. And um, for our honeymoon, we went to the Bahamas, uh, to Nassau Island. Uh, we had a great time. If you guys have been there, you know it's just beautiful, right? The, the water is the aqua blue. The beaches are beautiful. The weather's nice. Um, we had a beautiful hotel, we swam, we snorkeled, and we had a great time. And best of all, we were married. I was there with the woman of my dreams and enjoying being married. It was glorious. It was wonderful to be in the Bahamas 
on my honeymoon. But you know what? It wasn't perfect, though. There were some issues there. You ever notice when you lie on the beach and stuff and you get sand on the, sand on the blanket, it kind of it sticks to you, gets on your legs and stuff, and it gets in your suit, you know, and you've got the sand in your suit and you have to, like, walk around with sand in your suit, and then when you rinse it out, it's still there. We had this problem with sand. I did, at least. I had a problem with sand in, in my suit. And, and they, the food there was kind of good, but it was a lot of fried food. And after a while, you get that. I mean, you eat too much fried food, you get indigestion and stuff. And so I had some indigestion. There was this guy that would go up and down the beach all the time and saying, banana boat ride, banana boat ride. And he was trying to recruit us to do this silly ride on this banana inflated thing behind his boat. And it just was banana boat ride the whole time while we were there on the beach. It was annoying after a while, banana boat ride. And, and, and um, the weather was muggy, actually. It rained the first day, and it was muggy, and it was hot. And just uncomfortable. And uh, we only, it was expensive to go there. I mean, we only got a week there. I lost my wallet in the sand when I was there. Can you, I lost my wallet. And I had this pair of shoes. That I, I don't know if I have a shoe fetish or what. But there were these really nice shoes I got just for my honeymoon. And we left it on this island. And I, so I, I lost those shoes. Never see them again. And uh, actually, the, it was kind of wasn't a good time, was it? I mean, I don't know. That's ridiculous, right? I mean, who cares about all that stuff? I was married to Peg, and we were there on our honeymoon. Those things don't matter in comparison to all the undeserved blessings we experienced. That's how the gospel functions for us. When we understand what we have, it puts in perspective all the other stuff. It's just not a big deal. doesn't mean don't say anything. It just means put it in perspective. That's one way Holding fast to the word of life gives us the power to resist grumbling. One other way, real quick, and there are thousands of ways, the example of Christ. Just before this, Paul's talking about the example of Christ. Christ has gone from the highest place, God himself, to the very lowest place. He goes from this highest place. He gives up all glory. He lowers himself to the very lowest place, takes our sin on himself, dies for us, the very lowest, to serve us. His example is compelling. It's glorious. If he's served us, we should be compelled to, in some small way, serve others. His example, I, I think of during World War II, they, uh, they gave out rationing cards to everybody. And there's probably, I don't know if there's anybody in here who was alive back then, um, maybe a couple of us. Uh, they gave out rationing cards because they only had so many supplies of things and they had to supply the troops. And I don't think people really complained about the rationing cards. Why? Because there were millions of young men and, and some young women as well serving overseas, dying for their country. A million dead and wounded in World War II. Their sacrifice, and they're making the ultimate sacrifice, who cares if I have to limit myself to only five tires for my family or whatever. It just doesn't matter. The example compelled them. Similarly with Christ. His example compels us. If He served, then I certainly can serve and not make these preferences such a high priority. I hope that helps you. There are, like I said, a thousand other ways how the word of life gives us the power to resist grumbling and complaining. Finally, the result, and I won't have time to dig into this as much, the result is the glory of God. As we do this, the result is that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That when we live this way, we, we stand as a stark contrast 
to the normal way of living. We stand as a stark contrast to a twisted and crooked generation. Now, Paul has in mind the Israelites originally because that is how they are described, the ones who complained and refused the grace of God so gloriously given to them. They were a crooked and twisted generation, Deuteronomy says. And so when we refuse to grumble in question, when we ground ourselves in the word of life, we stand out in contrast to a crooked and twisted generation. And it's not just by being an Israelite in the past, it's by being someone who lives in the word of life today and standing in stark contrast to how the world operates. How does the world deal with problems? Through grumbling and arguing. The Christian stands out as they live in the word of life and speaking redemptively, starkly. He also says, you shine as lights in the world. I like how the NIV translates it. Shine as stars in the universe. The the words are interchangeable in the original language. And the reason I like it is because I think Paul is thinking of Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. I think we have that to put up. And this is at the end of Daniel, and God is speaking to Daniel. And he's talking about those who live a righteous life. That they will shine like stars forever and ever. And and in that verse in Daniel, it's wonderful that it ties it to the fact that they lead many to righteousness. When you live a life refusing to grumble and complain, putting your trust in the word of life, standing out in stark contrast, you will lead people to righteousness because they will see something different about you and you will have opportunity to point to them where your hope is. You will have opportunity to interact over their concern. And, and, and that's important to do. I hear your concern. And then in that conversation, they might say, well, why aren't you doing this? And you will say, well, here's why. The word of life that I'm holding on to makes the difference in my life. That's glorious. It's a glorious picture that Paul gives us, the difference it makes. He also says here that uh, in the day of Christ... He, he calls them to this so that in the day of Christ, verse 16 at the end, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The scary thing is if we persist in grumbling and arguing, it may be that we don't actually know what the word of life is. And if grumbling and complaining characterize our life, we do have to look soberly at ourselves and say, have we really got what the word of life means? Do we really understand the grace of God in Christ? Do we really know how much we've been forgiven? How much we are loved? If we're showing all this grumbling and complaining about things. So there's an assurance, a proper assurance that comes when we live in the word of life and produce good fruit of not grumbling and complaining. Paul says, for his sake, as you do this, I will know that I have not labored in vain because on that final day, you will be there. Your your salvation will have been preserved as you've trusted and obeyed. And you will be there and there'll be an eternal inheritance. There's an assurance that comes. And as the band comes up, one more thing. Paul finishes in verse 17 and 18. Calling the Philippians to rejoice in a life of faith and obedience. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, so he's still considering the possibility that he might die as he's in prison, even as I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. And I rejoice with you all. 
Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This life lived, holding on to the word of life, is a life of joy, even if we happen to lose our lives. It's a life of joy in the Lord, serving him. It's an offering of faith, pleasing to God, a fruitful life. And so we can rejoice. Paul calls them to ground their lives in the word of life and rejoice, even if it means Paul's life is taken. These are the results. These are the fruits of a life lived holding a fast to the word of life. These, these are the results of a life of refusing to grumble and complain. As we close, I want us to respond to God's word. I believe God is speaking to us. And he's speaking to you. And there are specific things in your life that need to be addressed. I don't know what they are. I know what they are for me. Maybe it's just some little grumbling complaining. Maybe it's a life characterized by grumbling and complaining. Let's take a minute before we close just to prayerfully go before the Lord. Identify that area. Say, Lord, please forgive me. Receive that forgiveness. Say, Lord, help me to live holding fast to the word of life, doing all things without grumbling and complaining. Then we'll close in song.